0: How blessed the people are. How happy are those who can say they have the Lord as their God. The Psalm uh, 33 makes that same point to us in verse 12. It's a uh, long, but a longer, but a beautiful psalm. I think it's uh, be good to read the whole thing together, though we're considering particularly the happiness of that nation whose God is the Lord. So that'll be the focus. And yet we recognize that that happiness is multifaceted as we read together. Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of 10 strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand firm in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord shall stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army, a mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their souls from death. To keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that the great happiness of this psalm and the people to whom it is addressed might be ours today and every day. A happiness that no man can dim. O God, our creator, our providential sustainer, the one who keeps our souls alive, the one who delivers us from death. All of these things make us rejoice and give our great praise again to you. May the Holy Spirit shed light on this word to increase the fruits of our happiness. In Christ we pray. Amen. In many places in the American colonies, Election Day was an official holiday, and it began with cannon firing, often with the marching of the militia to fife and drum, and then the procession of government officials, either to some government hall, or if one wasn't available, to a large nearby church. And there, the politicians and citizens would join together to... Give attention to what was called for years an election sermon. Not talking about any doctrines of grace, of course you understand, but uh, a sermon in which both the rulers and the people were instructed by God's word in their proper, God-given, civil responsibilities. Now, the fact that very few people in our day have even heard of an election sermon is proof that we as Americans have forgotten a lot of our own country's history and what made our nation so free, so moral, and so strong. Um, This celebrated practice uh, was not only in colonial times, but it was countrywide here in Virginia through the mid-19th century. We have Many volumes of printed election sermons from afar, as far back as 1630. Uh, David Hall recently put together a nice collection of those, still in print, and many of these volumes are available. They were published, they were read and reread over the years. In capitals, in county seats, such sermons were held in legislative chambers or uh, places where the business of government took place by the order of legislature so that we have chaplains invited to come and to uh, declare God's will to the assembly and uh, to continue to pray in legislative sessions. The idea behind the election sermons in particular was that all the citizens and their rulers needed godly wisdom in order to fulfill their responsibilities. How we treat our fellow man is inseparable from how we love our God, Government is by God's appointment, and civic duty and divine institutions are holy callings in that sense, and so such sermons would stimulate discussion about the proper roles and function of good government. It did a great deal to reform our view of government in colonial days and to establish the principles of our republic after our independence. Such uh, things also demonstrated how the gospel of Jesus had the most profound impact on what we now take for granted, I hope we still do the God given rights of men, the nature and biblical limits of government, the responsibilities of citizens and magistrates, the biblical qualifications for leadership, the nature of true civic virtue, the proper response to injustice, and the importance to obey and uphold government. All this and much more uh, is probably behind what John Quincy Adams wrote in a letter to a friend that, quote, the highest, the transcendent glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the precepts of Christianity. We wish to avoid any kind of overt Christian nationalism, as I hope you understand. But what he said was very much the project of the Christian citizenry for decades in those early days that we needed to reform the principles of civil government according to the Word of God and establish our nation on a much uh, freer and fuller course as a nation under God. It was a common belief that any nation that was well instructed in divine principles of government and righteousness could be preserved from tyranny and the corruption that was so common in virtually all the other nations that were ignoring God's decrees, certainly in Europe. Thus, sermons were preached and printed and distributed widely. Uh, Here's a short sample from from Samuel Cook's 1770 sermon, um, election sermon from 1770, rulers are appointed to be ministers of God for good. The people have a right to expect this from them and to require it, not as an act of grace, but as their reasonable due. It is the express or implicit condition upon which they were chosen and continued in public office that they attend continually upon this very thing. In justice to people and in faithfulness to God, They must either sustain it with fidelity or resign the office. (laughs) Um, That that kind of uh, strong statement year after year, uh, those kinds of sermons did a great deal to uh, keep our rulers on the straight and narrow, to keep our citizens very much engaged in fulfilling their responsibilities to uh, uh, elect and uh, re-elect good rulers. Now, You could guess how long bad rulers might stay in office with such thoughts year after year. Of course, that kind of preaching was criticized then, as now, as ministers preaching politics instead of the gospel. But they replied then, as now, that indeed the the gospel lays uh, all sorts of obligations on all classes of people. God certainly rules in the kingdoms of men and Now, especially that there is one king whom rulers must worship and serve ultimately, and one law that is good and moral and ought to be honored by all men in rulers and in nations, that it is the business of ministers of Christ to be able to declare that righteousness to rulers and their citizens. Well, we have enjoyed certainly the fruits of such labors year in, year out. We are in so many ways still living off that rich inheritance, but we have forgotten many important principles that Christian citizens of any nation ought to know and employ. And so with that in mind, we turn this evening to consider Psalm 33, a little less pointed than some other of my election sermons in times past, but one that fits well with the happiness that we have been studying, as Psalm 33 is a happy psalm happy is that nation whose God is the Lord. What does this mean? Well, let's first uh, consider the psalm in its context. In fact, it's actually a a psalm that's joined to Psalm 32 in a variety of ways, a psalm that we studied some weeks ago. Psalm 32 described the happiness of those whose sins were forgiven, you remember. Now, Psalm 32, Psalm 32 ends by inviting the righteous to rejoice and shout for joy and sing praise all you upright in heart. Psalm 33 begins with those same words. It picks up where the other psalm left off. It uh, repeats the words you notice, sing and righteous and upright uh, and uh, so forth, the themes being parallel. As a matter of fact, in, some, in some, some older Hebrew manuscripts, as well as in m- most ancient Greek and Latin translations of the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 32 and 33 are a single psalm. Um, it's possible that they were originally one and then split it into two parts, or it's possible that they, two songs were written at the same time by David and they both would come under that same line of authorship, a psalm of David, a contemplation Hard to uh, say. Well, certainly, there is uh, a number of things that there are a number of things that join the psalms together, although the subject material in 32 and 33 is rather different. In the first, the happiness of sins forgiven; in the psalm that we're considering tonight, uh, praising God for His sovereignty in creation and providence. Well, anyway, many psalms written. Uh, many psalms from the Psalter are written from the perspective of Israel as a distinctive nation and have a more Zionistic flavor. But Psalm 33, not so much. This psalm leads us to praise God, as I mentioned, for creation and providence and makes frequent reference to all peoples and nations. As one writer points out, it looks to all nations and to all generations and calls on people everywhere to praise God. And thank him for his universal blessings. This is a psalm of praise for everyone. Well, sure enough. Nevertheless, we are quick to say there are some psalms of the some parts of the Psalm that are very relevant, especially to Israel, for God, in his providence, has thwarted the evil plans of all the hostile nations round about. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. So the Lord very much overruling the plans of those nations and their rulers in favor of his own people. There's a story of a newly elected politician who had just arrived in Washington, D.C. He was visiting the home of some ranking senator. And the two men stood looking out over the Potomac River at an old rotten log floated by in the water. The senator said, this city is like that log out there. Well, how's that, asked the younger man. The senator replied, well, there are probably hundreds of bugs, ants, and other critters on that old log as it floats down the river, and I imagine that every one of them thinks that he's steering it the rulers of this world probably think that they are steering the course of history. But this psalm in the Bible as a whole is very, very clear that it is God whose hand is at the helm, that he sets up kings and casts down kings and makes them serve his own sovereign purposes. And whether it's Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Artaxerxes, God raised them up, And judged them as he pleased. He used them to advance his purposes for his own chosen people and to glorify his name. At the time, they were just making decisions that they thought would further their own agendas. I I expect, but behind the scenes, the Lord was directing their steps to His path. For Proverbs twenty-one, one, even the king's hand is in the heart of the Lord. Excuse me, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So the psalm celebrates special blessings for his people as God rules among the nations for the benefit of his own. We see this many times wonderfully expressed in scripture, how the Lord directs and governs the kings to fulfill his will. Uh, I think probably most wonderfully illustrated in the most important event in human history. The cross of Christ, where even there we read in Acts chapter 4 how the church so confidently prays that truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done. Acts four twenty seven and 28. God rules among the nations. All those proud rulers and the lawless peoples who were responsible for crucifying the Lord's anointed, as he says earlier, with your wicked hands. Yet they could only do so much as would carry out God's good purpose for redemption. Yes, God hardened their hearts. God gave them over, as Romans says, Okay, giving them over to their rebellion, but only in, so, in, only in so far as they could fulfill his greater good purposes. God frustrates the plans of the nations and establishes his own counsel, and all for the praise and the good of his people. God rules among the nations. Verse, uh, verse 11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And it's in that context that. Uh, more national context from Israel's perspective that we do find this happiness, this blessed statement, blessed or happy, our word again, happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Well, whose happiness is this? Who are we talking about? Is there any way we could enjoy such happiness today? That'll be the subject of our study. Let's quickly consider three perspectives on that happy verse. First, the happy kingdom of Israel the happy kingdom of Israel. When David describes the nation whose God is the Lord, he, of course, means his own nation, whom God has chosen from among all the peoples of the earth to be his own. We read this in many places, but in Exodus chapter 19, for instance, just as God is about to give the people the law at Sinai, he has the following words, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel,' You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure above all people, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Happy are the people, then, whose God is the Lord, the nation that he has chosen. This psalm, an example of uh, poetic uh, parallelism, parallelism, by the way, you see how the same thing is said twice in different ways here in verse 12, so that the two expressions can both explain and even uh, elucidate each other, reinforce each other. The nation whose God is the Lord is the same one as the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Uh, Israel indeed, and what was the happiness of that nation? Much in every way, too much that we can possibly say tonight, but Paul summarizes it by saying that to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So Moses could write happy, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. That is the happiness of the kingdom of Israel. And God had promised them that uh, that happiness would grow and extend so that, well, we read some weeks ago that even Japheth would one day take his residence in the tents of Shem, and join him happily in praising the Lord as their God. The nations would clamor to join themselves to so glorious a kingdom in the days of Messiah that they too, uh, of to whom God said you are not a people, that they too should become the people of God. And so, of course, nowadays this developed this developed uh, as long anticipated to be now fulfilled in the calling of God's elect that of every, every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the earth so that we now have an even greater fulfillment of this verse, an expansion of that happiness that embraces us as well. Uh, Having considered the happy kingdom of Israel, we come now secondly to our present situation, the happy kingdom of Christ, as the king of the Jews is our king, as we have been enfolded into the Israel of God. So Peter could now write, This in his first letter to the churches of Asia. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Same verse as before, same words as before. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. And so, beloved, I beg you, he says, as sojourners and pilgrims, that is to say, citizens of a different country, but residing at this moment among the nations of the earth, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul and so forth. So, my, my, my point is, uh, the, these very terms that, uh, that God had uh, delegated to the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, that happy kingdom of Israel, at least to so many who had kept his covenant, um, them he had made a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So likewise, we who have received the blessings of the new covenant in Christ are to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the happiness of this psalm is now ours. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. Be happy, O holy nation. Peter had quoted a prophecy that many in Israel would stumble. It's not a new phenomenon. It's a very old phenomenon, even from the day that God brought his people out of Egypt. But when Messiah came, the word was, Peter quotes then in the same context, "...behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes on him will by no means put to shame. To you who believe, he's precious, but to those who are disobedient..." The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Well, what I'm getting at here is that uh, only the, those who share the faith of Abraham are able to claim the happiness because it is only by faith in Christ and only by the new birth in him that we can ever see or enter the kingdom of God. God is working among all the nations of the earth at this time, and God is not even done with his people of old. I wish to tell you more at some future time, as they, for the present part, have in the main stumbled. Paul is clear to write that, hey, he, uh, he hasn't completely cut off his people. I myself am an Israelite. There always was, and so to this day there is a remnant, and what is partial is not final for a partial hardening has happened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Well, these are the things which have to wait for another time. The point is, at at the present moment, the kingdom of Christ has come, Christ has inherited all nations, and all of his people, the ones whom he has chosen as his own inheritance, are the happy nation. In Ephesians 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul declares his desire that every believer might have the eyes of this understanding enlightened to know the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in the saints, such as it is Christ's inheritance in the saints. We are the people that God has chosen as his own inheritance Psalm 33, verse 12. That's us, the handful of Christian churches in the first century that seemed to be of no particular consequence to anyone. These people in Asia that were just overwhelmed by pagans and by the abuse of unbelieving Jews. They thought that they were the off-scouring of the earth in so many ways. But the fact is, they were a nation of great consequence, a holy nation, a nation greater than the Babylonians and Persians put together. They were the people of God, the only kingdom in the world of that day that would exist even in 500 years, if I'm not mistaken, or certainly in 1,000 and 2,000, or as long as the world endures. Uh, They were the nation most blessed, most happy, that would have no end. America, perhaps, will be soon forgotten in the winds of eternal time, but... The believers in that world and this uh, will be counted forever as among the citizens of Zion. The nations of the earth come and go, but the nation that the Lord has blessed will endure forever and their work to all generations. The citizens of Christ's kingdom at the moment are living throughout the world as resident aliens, and we are not ultimately identified with any land. That means that we receive the blessing of Psalm 33 through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, and that we look for a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Happy are the people who have become Christ's citizens and subjects. Well, much more that I could say, but there was a time, Paul writes, that we were of no account, that we Gentiles were uh, strangers and foreigners, afar off without God in the world, now citizens with the saints. God, having brought Jews and Gentiles together, making one man, one new man from the two, thus making peace and reconciling them in one body through the cross. The happiness, the happiness of Christ's kingdom. But uh, we also consider now, thirdly, one more important perspective that I will take the rest of the time on, the happy nations under Christ's reign. The happy nations, plural, under Christ's reign. Some important things have happened since the coming of Messiah. One, of course, is that the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles and they also sharing as citizens, fellow citizens with the saints. Another important development is that Christ has been appointed the ruler and heir of all nations. We read this in many places, but some weeks ago we studied Psalm 2 about the world's reaction to the rule of God and the appointment of his Christ, that the nations rage and conspire together and don't want to submit. They will not be controlled. Or they say, in the Lord's words, we will not have this man to rule over us. The Lord, for his part, laughs. What are they going to do? And he speaks to them in his derision. I have set my king to reign in Zion. Therefore, there is a warning given to the kings and the rulers and the nations of the earth. You better kiss the sun, his wrath to turn, lest you perish. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will dash them together as a potter's vessel. And this tension is where you and I live today. There is on the one hand now the rule of God and his anointed over all nations, to which all are called to submit. And yet they rage and they wish to cast off his restraint even still. Or we can think of Psalm 110, where the Messiah is told to rule in the midst of your enemies this tension, this crackling tension. Here is God's anointed king with all authority in heaven and earth, and here are all the rebellious nations who say, no way. Well, Christ is seated on his throne over a hostile world, ruling them with a rod of iron, dashing them as he pleases in pieces like a potter's vessel, making war against them with the sword of his mouth, and bringing them through his word more and more uh, to uh, confess his uh, rulership as, well, it's called, he's called the ruler of the nations, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ruler over the princes of the earth, and with many such titles, we are reminded that our king reigns. The rulers of the nations are given an ultimatum. Repent or perish. Oh, be wise kings, be instructed judges of the earth. You better serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Happy are all those who put their trust in him. This psalm concludes with a happy blessing or benediction to any of the earth's rulers who will serve the Lord and kiss the sun. And so, this psalm about the happiness of the nations, the nation whose God is the Lord, while of course originally applying only to that nation of Israel at the time among all the peoples of the earth, God's only people for his namesake. Now, of course, having spread throughout all the earth, we are joined up in that happiness. And yet, insofar as nations, rulers, and even their uh, citizens with political authority kiss the sun and serve the Lord, that those nations, too, are called happy and blessed. A painting hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London, depicting Queen Victoria presenting a Bible to the ruler of one of her realms in uh, Windsor Castle. Uh, it's set. The title of the painting is "The Secrets." Excuse me, "The Secret of England's Greatness." Do you get all that? Queen Victoria presenting a Bible to the ruler of one of her realms. You better rule according to this word. As I think it was Edward VI, he said, as God has appointed me to be next to him in authority, I better be next to him in mercy as well. So he labored to, uh, to be a good and godly king. Britain indeed became great Britain because of the influence of the word of God, and Britain will be a shadow of her former self morally as well as politically insofar as she rejects the holy influence of that same Bible. But the true, same is true, of course, for all nations. Now, we live in a constitutional republic in which we ultimately are rulers of a sort. In our scheme of government, we obey our rulers because they obey us, and if our rulers don't obey us, we'll get ourselves some new rulers. I have some problems with that scheme of government, but this is what the hand we've been dealt, and that means that we have responsibilities. Oh, fellow rulers, or should I say, kings and judges of the earth from among the nations, that we have some requirements if we are going to remain a happy and free people. Our Confession of Faith summarizes some of those duties. It says, "...as the gospel revelation lays indispensable obligations upon all classes of people who are favored with it, magistrates, as such, are bound to execute their respective offices in subserviency thereunto." Administering government on Christian principles and ruling in the fear of God, according to the directions of his word, as those who shall give an account to the Lord Jesus, whom God has appointed to be the judge of the world. Yes, rulers will be judged for their actions as rulers on that great day by the King of Kings. Uh, David's last words are uh, recorded in Scripture. Uh, his last words are that uh, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. It is certainly true in that nation that God had chosen at that time, but Proverbs 14.34 reminds us righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And so you see, while we shouldn't make that psalm primarily say something that was never intended to say, the happiness that we enjoy can also be enjoyed among the nations insofar as its rulers and those who elect them are conscious of their divine obligations, serving the Lord in fear, administering government according to godly principle. And so Paul reminds us that that by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is the head of all. We remember the importance of what's been called sphere sovereignty, that the church is not to have any governing authority over the state, or vice versa. Rulers are appointed by God to serve him for their part, and to him they must give an account. They bear the sword that God has given them to accomplish those ends, Uh, Those ends, we bear the sword of the spirit here in the church for a very different end, but nevertheless, our confession is clear that in whatever respective, um, uh, well, let's see, whatever actions God-appointed rulers take, that by God's appointment, they must not either destroy civil rights, nor does it imply an interference with the policy of the church, which is the free and independent kingdom of the Redeemer, nor an assumption of dominion over conscience. In other words, the state, though a separate, uh, having its own separate calling from God, must exercise that calling in such a way that they do not interfere with the happy, free, independent rule of the Redeemer over his church, nor, assume a dominion over conscience by making God's people to do things which God has forbidden or forbidding things which God has commanded us to do. So here we are in the political season again and it increasingly appears that whomever we elect, not many uh, noble are uh, called here. Uh, We do not have a, a number of outstandingly godly representatives. We are so very thankful for those godly representatives who are standing and ruling, thankful for this congregation and for those who have been uh, elected to office this year. Very, very, very thankful to those who have been engaged directly in civil government, calling those rulers to rule in the fear of God in righteousness and uh, uh, so fulfilling that mandate that uh, Christian citizens have in a republic that uh, we have political responsibility as well as a measure of authority. Well, as we look to our own election process, uh, lots of discussion these days about finances and uh, what is to be done here and there. We, we remember that uh, ultimately it, it will not be any policy that is able to deliver our nation. No horse, says the psalm, will be able to bring salvation to its people. It is only the Lord that is able to bring deliverance, and so, and so it is. We put no confidence in princes, ultimately, but have our confidence only in the king of kings, and any policy which we have uh, here, we call to be in line with his will. Well, let me make a couple points of application here. Every year, somewhere between 60,000 and 200,000 people die from a medical condition known as deep vein thrombosis, or DVT. I I know very little about this, so I hope I've gotten the details right for this illustration. Uh, Deep vein thrombosis, DVT, occurs in the legs when blood has pooled and formed a clot that then uh, circulates to the lungs or brain where it causes respiratory failure or a stroke or some other uh, catastrophic eventuality. The the, the thing about DVTs is that they are not caused by irresponsible action. They are caused by inaction. They're not caused by something that we do. They're caused by something we don't do. That is to say, uh, just sitting down too long on an airplane can cause deep vein thrombosis. and deep vein thrombosis, uh, dying from doing nothing, uh, is something that we must consider as a nation. We have been uh, the recipients of a great, great deal of effort in years past to bring the word of God to apply to rulers and citizens, to inform them about righteousness and God-given duties, to rebuke them as necessary. And um, we will not be able to continue to enjoy the blessings of righteousness and liberty if we remain so inactive. Um, one, uh, One scholar of history has noted a certain circularity among the historically Christian nations of the earth that uh, they, these nations, through the word of the Lord, uh, are brought from bondage to spiritual faith, and then from spiritual faith to great courage, and then from courage to liberty, and from liberty to abundance. But then they go from abundance to complacency, and from complacency to apathy, from apathy to government dependence, and from government dependence, they return back into bondage. I'll leave it to you where we are in that cycle. Simply to say that um, walking in the fear of the Lord as we ought means that we are going to fight to reverse such a cycle. We must have the courage to go against the the strong currents of our culture when necessary. Not that we're picking fights over every national issue or not that we should be controversial in spirit, but courageously to stand for the truth and to say... Thus says the Lord, uh, some issues, of course, are much bigger than politics abortion such an issue in my view. you know the um, uh, the the banquet uh, comes very soon it' snuck up on me as well in so many ways. Uh, I hope that uh, you remember that not, no matter what happens in the state houses of our country. All the hard work is still going to be done at the local level of people ministering in the name of Christ. Politics may be entwined with abortion or political parties taking this position or or that, Uh, justices ruling this way or the other. But as one man writes, we, in any case, must be speaking prophetically to the issues that relate to Christ's will and then we should let the chips fall where they may. If it sounds Republican or Democratic or independent, so be it. Gather the issues together and meditate on them, weigh them in the balances of the Bible, then speak prophetically about them. Ultimately, we want to communicate, even while engaging in politics, that politics are not the main issue on this earth. Knowing the creator is the main issue and being reconciled with him and glorifying him in all that we believe and say and do. And that is what the church constantly must be calling people. So when we say this is the will of the Lord, it's not just a political statement. It's ultimately saying, kiss the sun, that you might join us in our happiness. Well, are your values from the world, or are they consistent with our true homeland? Are your business ethics those of the company or those of heaven? Is your family organization worldly or heavenly? Do you speak in a foreign accent when you are out and about so that people know from whence you have come? There is a social and political divide in this country, but it is not ultimately red and blue. It is in Adam or in Christ, and that is the only divide that will make any difference on that last day. Nevertheless, as free citizens of the most powerful nation on earth, Uh, A country that until very recently has been most friendly to the Christian church indeed. John Jay could even call us a Christian nation. In fact, in the previous century, a Supreme Court justice, without fear of contradiction, would say the same thing. We remember we have enjoyed so many blessings, so many happinesses in days past. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. People of God, be happy and rejoice, but as a happy and... Free people, whom the Lord has set free, who is free indeed. Let us not forget the nations in our capacity to bring them happiness as well. Matthew Henry comments on this psalm, what a pity it is that the earth, which is so full of God's goodness, should be so empty of his praises, that of the multitudes that live upon his bounty, so few so few there are that live to his glory. So, brothers and sisters, in this election week. And in every week in which you have opportunity to speak and to serve in the civic sphere, remember these words, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, verse 8. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. And the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, but the counsel of the Lord that will stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how good it is for us to be the citizens and the subjects again of so mighty a nation, uh, a kingdom that has no end, uh, a reign that has been now been uh, made manifest to the saints, that we have been blessed as uh, subjects of the King of kings and the Lord of lords to become a kingdom of priests. And we pray that we likewise, as ambassadors of that king, might bring his joy and his peaceful reign to the nations among the earth. We know that still so many on both sides of the aisle desire to cast your cords away. May they, through the word of the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, be overcome and uh, brought to serve you and your holy purposes. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. May the kingdom of priests do their work in the earth by your great strength.